You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Well, good morning everyone at home. Thanks for joining with us in our live stream service again today. We're nearly there, aren't we? Probably another couple of weeks and we hope, God willing, that we'll be able to gather again together in person and that will be such an encouraging and an exciting day, I know, for many of us. Thanks to uh, Mark and to Max and Billy for reading and praying and sharing in our service today, as well as the praise team who have led us so well, and for those on sound and visuals this morning. If you have a Bible there, please do turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. Over these next few weeks, we're going to be finishing out in our Among Us series. And as you do so, I want you to picture with me, just for a moment, a 12-year-old boy growing up in a loving family. As he matures, he finds himself trying to figure out how to assure himself of his place within that family. So one week, whenever his mum and dad are out, he, he sets about cleaning the house from top to bottom. He gets out the hoover, he dusts, he scrubs, he mops, and the house is sparkling. The following week, in order to assure himself of his acceptability in the family, he decides that he's going to imitate his dad in everything that his dad does. So whenever his dad's going out in the car, he, he goes out in the car with his dad. Whenever his dad's watching on TV, he watches along with him. Whatever work his dad's doing, he asks him, what is it you're doing? And what does that involve? And what does that look like? And he even begins to copy his mannerisms around the meal table and how his dad acts around the house. On the third week, he offers to do the grocery run for his mum. He sits down and helps his little sister with her homework. And then he begins to display more and more photographs of his family all around his bedroom wall. And then he goes to his mum and dad's filing cabinet. He pulls out his birth certificate. He frames it and he puts it up in the living room. Can you imagine how his parents, after those few weeks, would begin to respond. What's wrong, son? What's, what's all this about? To which the boy would reply, I'm just doing all I can to assure myself of my place within this family. How did the mum and dad respond? Well, by probably reaching out to him and hugging him and saying, calm down, son. There's nothing you can possibly do to lose your place in this family. Just like there was nothing you did to earn your place in this family. You need to live your life knowing that your sonship is settled. You will always belong to us. You know, reminding ourselves as Christians that we are in Christ is a perpetual challenge. For we all too easily slip back into the very unhelpful patterns of either trying to prove ourselves in the Christian life or priding ourselves of where we've got to in our Christian lives. Today, as we come to these words of Paul in Galatians, our chronic tendency to pride or to proving ourselves is revealed once again, but our Father in heaven wants us to draw us back, accept his love, and find our place in his family that has already been secured by an elder brother called Jesus. 
Dean Ortland summarizes Galatians very helpfully in this very simple way. Galatians teaches that we are made right with God based on what Christ has done rather than what we do. Let's dive straight into these verses as we reread some of them. Have a look with me again at verses 19 to 21. I think it's worth rereading them. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. I'm going to use some provocative statements this morning that I hope will drive home the point. Here's the first truth that Paul wants to declare. Number one, I am dead. I am dead. You heard me right, and it's a core Christian truth. If we don't believe this, we haven't got the gospel. To be a Christian as God sees it, and he is the only one that matters, to be a Christian is to declare, I am dead. Galatians 2, 19 and 20 helps us understand. In fact, it's repeated twice in those verses. For through the law, I have died to the law. And then he goes on to say, I have been crucified with Christ. I am dead. First of all, because of verse 19, because of the law, because of the law. You see, Paul is writing to the church at Galatia, and one of the issues that had arisen there was the place of the Old Testament law in the life of a New Testament believer. For within that church, there were those from Gentile, that is, non-Jewish backgrounds, and there, of course there were those from Jewish backgrounds brought up with the temple and circumcision and sacrifices and the Sabbath and feast days, and most of these guys had memorized Genesis, Deuteronomy, the Old Testament law. They'd learned it all at school. It was all up here. You see, the Old Testament law had been given by God to Moses as a means by which God's people could stay in relationship with God. In other words, just like we do it on a Sunday night, to this big overview of the Bible, obedience equals God's blessing, whilst disobedience equals God's curse. The law was precious to the Jewish community, but the problem was no one could keep it perfectly. In other words, everyone was cursed, dead. So instead of the law being the means by which God's people could be saved by keeping it, it became the means by which they saw that they were separated from God because they had broken it. The law that should have saved them actually condemned them because sinful people can't keep God's law no matter how hard they try. And whether you're Jewish or not, that's the struggle that many people in church and our community face today. We are constantly, no matter who you are, doesn't matter who you are today, all of us continue to seek approval before God and others by trying to prove ourselves. We spend so much of our lives looking for approval and acceptance, and if it's not in front of others, it's certainly before God by the way we live. The accolades we achieve, the organizations we're involved in, the amount we pay in, the regularity of our attendance, the really nice things that we do for other people. And it's almost like we, we sprinkle a little bit of goodness over everything we do, 
But that is like decorating a moldy cake with bucket loads of hundreds and thousands. It looks so sweet on top, but deep down we don't know what to do with our sin. That's all of us. Every single one of us watching this morning, we're like that moldy cake and we always try and sprinkle goodness on top to make ourselves look better. We know our hearts and we face the dilemma in that we're never sure how good will be good enough for God. What if I haven't cooked enough meals for the old folks? What if I haven't gone to all the right meetings, prayed the right prayers, joined the right committees, taken communion, been successful in business, raised a nice family? Our hearts plunge at the thought because we know that the law actually condemns us. But when we take the greatest commandment as pronounced by Jesus, I wonder how any of us fare. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, we hear words like that. We're condemned. We can only say what Paul says here, through the law, I have died to the law. You see, whenever we look at the mirror of God's law, we have failed. We are dead. But what does that mean for us? Well, namely this. If according to the Bible we're dead because we're condemned, it means that dead people don't get credit. You know, if you're dead, you can't receive a reward. You know, later on this summer when the Olympics are held, the 100 meters won't be won by a dead person. That just couldn't happen. You can't get a degree. You can't be awarded any medals if you're dead. And it's the same spiritually speaking in terms of the law. We're dead. There's nothing we can do that gets us noticed by God because we're dead to him. In God's eyes, we're stone cold dead. The law has declared us condemned, dead to God. It means that we can take no pride in any performance. No matter how good we've been, we're still dead to God. If you're someone who is still utterly convinced that what you do and the kindly person you are will be good enough for God, you are mistaken. Why? Because you're dead to him, and no matter what you wave before him, he doesn't see it. He doesn't mark it. He doesn't record it because you're dead to him. You know, it's like some of those Hollywood films in recent years that portray in a very sickly sweet way someone who's been allowed, you know, it's all fiction, to come back from the dead in order to help solve a problem that's been left behind or undo an issue that's been left unresolved in their family. But the problem is they do all this nice stuff but no one can see them. No one knows it's them doing it. No one acknowledges them because they're dead. And this law statement of verse 19 is shocking to us. Think of how it felt to the Jewish community who'd spent their whole life memorizing the scriptures, observing the Sabbath, doing all the right things, but never being counted to their credit. But now that the pride of our performance is declared dead, surely that just leaves us in despair, does it not? knowing that nothing I do will be good enough, impress enough for God to accept me. And this was the issue in Galatia. Not for unbelievers, but incredibly, this was the issue for the Christians in Galatia. Because you see, there were Jews who had come to Christ who were now insisting on going back to the law, 
the Old Testament codes, the traditions of the past, insisting on what should be eaten on Gentiles and on circumcision. But to go back to the law in order to win favor with God, to use a grotesque idea, was it's like becoming a grave digger. It's like going back and digging up the corpse of our dead past to trail it round behind us with the skeleton rattling around and the bones clanking and us dragging it around everywhere, thinking, oh, our goodness will get us acceptance before God. And it's like we're dragging around a dead body behind us all the time. The smell of death hanging over us was meant to lead us to something different. But how do I know? Well, let me reemphasize it. Turn over one page in your Bibles to, to Galatians 3, verses 10 to 13. Let's read there, Galatians 3. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. In God's eyes, we're dead, cursed. But it's only through a cursed one will we receive anything new. But we need not despair because these verses also explain, secondly, that I am dead, verse 20, because I have been crucified with Christ. You see it in verse 20? I have been crucified with Christ. This is our second deadness, if you like. It's a strange term, isn't it? I have been crucified with Christ. But it speaks of a wonderful union with Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's a very graphic way of describing what it means for us. We are in Christ. You see, if we are in despair as to how we can now be accepted before God, if our good works and keeping of the law is dead to him, then we need to find an answer. We need to find someone to make us right with God. And that solution must lie outside of ourselves. For if we are dead to God, we need someone who is alive to God, someone who has kept the law perfectly, someone who has obeyed the Father faithfully, someone who has walked the path of blessing completely. In other words, only Jesus. And here we read that he has been crucified. And, and we all nod our heads at home. Yeah, I believe that. Jesus has been crucified. And all our hope of acceptance, freedom from condemnation, and a moving from being dead to God to alive in him rests in the death of his Son, our Savior. Again, we're all nodding in agreement at that. And there, but there's an incredible faith union described here that I don't think we've ever really got our minds around, that we share, we share with Jesus in his death. Look at it again. The death that he died was not just for us, but we were mysteriously, wonderfully with him, in him, as he experienced the white-hot judgment that sin deserved, as hell and all its pain and the wrath that we deserved was exacted on Jesus at the cross. So in other words, if we read Paul correctly here, as that body is hoisted to the cross on that first Good Friday, if we are in Christ, that is us there too. That's you and me hanging there, sin being paid for. 
And as those nails are driven into Jesus' hands and feet, if we are in Christ, those nails are being driven into our hands and feet. We are there too. Those nails go through our hands and feet. That's you and me being punished for the sin that we have done. And as that pool of blood forms at the base of the cross, if we are in Christ, that is our life bleeding out as we die with him, with him. And when Jesus says, it is finished, if we are in Christ and with Christ, it is also finished for us as well. Sin completely paid for. Wrath has fallen upon us. There's nothing more that needs done. God has exacted his judgment on sin upon us because we are in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. We read that and we must see ourselves in all its wonder and beauty in the tragedy that we are there if we trust in Christ, our life is subsumed into his. Jesus deals with our deadness to the law for us in Christ, and we are in him. So as Jesus lives that perfect life for 33 years and is accepted by God the Father as pure and spotless lamb, that's us. We're pure. We're spotless. We're perfected. We're regarded as obedient and righteous and a child because we are in Christ. Christ came under the curse of the law. He took our condemnation, which means we have died in him and with him. The death and resurrection of Jesus were not merely historical events in which we look on and look back. But those are moments in which we share. His death is our death. His resurrection, our resurrection. Our old life is dead. It's gone. Do you see what that means for us today as Christians who trust in Christ? It strips us of every ounce of despair. It's bigger and greater and bolder, this salvation, and more complete and comprehensive than any of us ever dared imagine. For if we are in Christ, we are dead. We have been crucified. We have already faced the condemnation of God's wrath for broken law in Jesus. We are gloriously dead. Isn't that wonderful? We're dead. Isn't it great to be dead, Christian, this morning? Our sinful self is dead and buried in Jesus. And you know what that means? Dead people don't get bad reports. Dead people can't underachieve, mess up, let them down, fluff it. Even if we sin now, he doesn't see it because our old life is dead. We are in him. The old is gone, the new has come. What's true of Jesus is now true of me. No sin can now exclude me from him. For all that is true of me, namely my sin, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise God. In Christ we were once dead to him, but now we have died with him. Which leads on to the second point today. I've never been more alive. 
I've never been more alive. Look at verse 20. It reminds us of that. It tells us that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I've never been more alive. This expresses the ongoing idea of our dramatic life-giving union with Jesus. At the heart of the Christian faith is this unending connection with Jesus. When we turn in faith and repentance to Christ, acknowledging that there's no other way to be saved and secure, that in looking to him, our status changes eternally. We move from being outside of Christ to inside of Christ, from condemnation to justification, from sin to righteousness. Now, it is not we who live, but it's because Christ lives in us. We are in him, but he is in us. I was standing queuing in uh, one of Macrofelt's most salubrious eating establishments the other night, ordering a chip. And when a young lad came in, maybe no more than 10 years old, he was bogging. Absolutely head to toe, he was bogging. He had either been working on the farm all day or rolling around in his garden kicking football. Anyway, he came in, and he came in confident as anything, stinking the place out. But he came right up to the till, and he said his name, and the girl looked behind the counter, and out came the biggest set of brown takeaway bags I've ever seen, stuffed full of cowboy suppers, cod meals, onion rings, and goodness knows what else. He could barely carry them out. In fact, I'd actually, I actually had to open the door for him. He had no adult with him. He was only 10 years old. But how did he pay? Not cash from his pocket, from his grubby hands. But what he did was he held out a little credit card. And all he did was hold it over the chip and pin reader. And beep! His mummy's card paid for the food. And off he went back to the car. He held it. He was united to it. He hadn't a penny to offer. And so he left the chippy, grubby, but happy. His meal had been paid for at no cost to him, all due to the name on the card. And friends, that's the gospel. We live off what Christ has accomplished. And we hold his name as our name, his riches as our riches. In our grubby, sinful hands, as it were, we hold the credit card for righteousness that we hold up, and that is our means of receiving far more than bags of food, but the eternal riches of a glorious inheritance. For once we've been united to Christ in his death, our old life is finished. It would be ridiculous to suggest that we should ever go back to it. How daft it would have been for that little lad to have begun scraping around for coins in his tattered tracksuit bottoms to pay for a meal when the credit card with his parents' name on it covered the lot. We have risen to a new life. But that's always a temptation for believers, isn't it? You and I do it every day of our Christian lives. We keep searching in our scruffy, dirty pockets, pretending that we can actually offer something to God, thinking that will keep us sweet with him. Oh, if I just do this, he'll love me more, and I will keep myself assured that I am his. And Paul's letter to the Galatians is his response to all Christians who had this underlying tendency that whispers in our ears that we have to keep proving ourselves. John Newton, that wonderfully saved former slave ship captain and gospel preacher, and hymn writer who wrote Amazing Grace, put it like this. Why should you fear? Our sins are many, but his mercies are more. 
There's words that are familiar to us. Our sins are great, but his righteousness greater. We are weak, but he is power. Most of our complaints are owing to unbelief and the remainder of a legal spirit. By legal spirit, that thought that we need to keep proving ourselves. Still operating in us, it kills our sense that God's heart is one of love towards us. Think of a radiator in your bedroom. It's connected to the central heating system. And imagine you turn it off in the summer when the sun is shining and all is well, and you feel good and you don't need that heat. But come the winter time, you know you should turn it on, but you couldn't be bothered to turn that dial and let the heat flow again. The house flooded with heat, but you sit there freezing cold. Why are you cold? Because you've closed it off and haven't reopened it. It was fine in the summer, but in the winter you feel far from warm. Just opening that radiator up will fill your room with warmth. The heat is there to be shared and waiting to be accessed by you, but you're not benefiting from it. And folks, that's all of us in our Christian experiences. When life is good and we're enjoying the summer of life, we so easily forget what God has done and relevant. And it's almost like we turn it off. We think about how well our jobs are going and our homes are looking and our bank accounts are flourishing and our children are developing and our church group is growing. But then winter always comes. We always will feel cold and isolated and disgruntled at some point. And maybe family life is not what we had hoped for. Or our jobs or church life have disappointed us. Or that friendship or relationship didn't work out for us. Our money has dried up for us. Our dreams have taken from us. We maybe have let ourselves down or let others down. And our hearts have gone cold. We haven't let the warmth flow into our lives. It has become all about performance again. But Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his wonderful book entitled Spiritual Depression says this. I must never ask myself in the first instance, what do I feel about this? The first question is, do I believe it? Avoid the temptations of Satan to give feelings the great prominence at the center. But at the center, the only one who has a right to be there is the Lord of glory. Who so loved you that he went to the cross and bore the punishment and the shame of your sins and died for you. These verses exist in Galatians, to open up the radiators of our hearts to be flooded by the warmth of God's love. It's the felt love of Christ that really brings rest and wholeness and flourishing and peace. Let me say this lovingly, but it's powerfully and life-changingly true. In Christ, you are truly invincible. For the verdict is this, nothing can touch you. He has made you his own, summer and winter, Light days and dark days, he will never cast you out. Because he lives in us. And we live in him. Which all becomes thirdly and finally and briefly very, very personal. Galatians 2 verse 20, I live by faith in the Son of God. You see how personal it gets? Who loved me and gave himself me. You can just wallow in that statement for the rest of today, couldn't you? Love me. Give himself for me. 
Isn't that the most incredible statement, Christian friends, as you battle with distraction and sin and maybe even your Wi-Fi connection at home this morning? Our faith rests in the Son of God, the Son of God who loved you personally, intimately, and gave himself for you. His heart for me couldn't sit still in heaven. Our sins darken our feelings of his gracious heart, but his heart cannot be diminished for his own people due to their sins any more than the sun's existence can be threatened by a few wispy clouds or even the extended thunderstorm. Dale Nortland again puts it like this. The sun is shining. It cannot stop. Clouds, no clouds, sin, no sin. The tender heart of the Son of God is shining on me. This is an unflappable affection, and the sweep of the New Testament teaching is that it is the Son of Christ's heart, not the clouds of my sins, that now define me. I, I have been brought into this incredible new life. Yes, we're sinners. Yes, we sin, not just in the past, but in the present, and we will do in the future, and not just in our disobedience, but also in our twisted obedience in which we think that God will love us more if we do this or that. I mean, this is a God we're talking about, our God, an all-knowing and all-seeing God. He doesn't stop us a few years into our Christian lives and say, oh, I'm so sorry that I saved you. If only I had known that you were going to behave like that. If only I'd known you were going to sin that way. If only I'd known you were going to make such a mess of your Christian life, I would have looked for someone else. Whenever I was recruiting you, I thought you were going to be a real asset to my organization. No, of course not. He knows us exactly what we're like. And that's exactly why he came to save us. The Son of God loved me. The Son of God gave himself for me. He comes looking for us. He comes giving his life for us. He knows who we are, and he knows what we are. And what he does hinges on that one little word there. Do you see it? For. Gave himself for me. And that little word for means so much. It means in place of. It means as my substitute. You see, in our studies of Jesus, the Son who came among us, we have seen him as our advocate acting for us in the courtroom of heaven. We've heard him pray for us as our intercessor before the Father. We have witnessed him as a friend of sinners. But here he is, the victim, suffering in our place, there for us. All our sin placed on him. God chose to bruise him, to lay our sins on him. And that's our justification taking place at Calvary. And that's why we are reckless and it is pointless to start justifying ourselves because as Galatians 2.21 reminds us, if I set God's grace aside, Jesus died for nothing. If I can achieve forgiveness and acceptance in heaven myself, the cross is just a tragic mess and a waste of time and a callous, brutal way to treat the Son of God. And I say that lovingly and gently at home today, if you still think that you can make your own way to heaven by your own goodness, and faithfulness, and niceness, then you've got to read verse 21, because you're basically saying to God, well, why did you bother saying that, Jesus, that was a terrible waste of time. You're telling God how to do what only God can do. Without the four in verse 20, the cross becomes an argument that God is not love, that God has gone mad, that he sacrificed Jesus just for the sake of it. But in that little word for, we have the light of our lives, the joy of our hearts, 
the salvation of sinners. He is there for you. Can you say? Won't you say? What a joy to be able to say. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself 